All right, we're continuing our study in the life of David. I'm going to ask that you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I'm going to ask that you hold on, because we're about to, to try to cover chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21 tonight. In this period of David's life, he's going to experience something that we've all experienced, the roller coaster, the ups and downs of life. We've all been there. Every one of us has had a, a period in our life where everything is working out perfectly, where, where every experience is a highlight, where er, everything is a mountaintop, where everything is going great. We have also experienced that time where everything is a valley. Constant negative experience after another, and just difficulty after difficulty, and lowest moments of our life falling or occurring one after another. The peaks and the valleys. And what we have here between chapter 18 and 21 is this significant transition in the life of David. Chapter 18 is all about um, his success. It's all about these positive things going on in his life. But then chapter 19 hits, and from chapter 19, 20, and 21, it's all downhill. And so we're going to walk through this account, and we're going to see all that David experiences over these, these handful of chapters. And in the end, we're going to see where he ended up. So we're going to start this by looking at the gains in David's life. Beginning here in chapter 18, what's interesting about chapter 18 is that three times we're told that David was successful or had success. If you look at verse 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're told that David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And if you look at verse uh, 14, you're going to see a similar statement. In verse 14 of 1 Samuel 18, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 30, we are told that the, um, the second half of that verse, that David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Chapter 18 is just all about success. David is on the heels of the defeat of Goliath, and here we are. Everything is, is seemingly perfect in his life. The first thing he gains in chapter 18, in the aftermath of the slaying of Goliath, is he gained a friend. It's here in the first few verses of 1 Samuel 18 that we read about this relationship between him and Jonathan. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 through 4. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What we have happening here is two individuals finding a kinship unlike any other that they've had before. When Jonathan takes off his robe and takes off his armor, and gives his weaponry to David, it's signifying that not even his royal position will come between him and David. There is some symbolism possibly even of this willingness to let David be the 
heir apparent to the throne that David knows he is, that Samuel knows he is, that God knows he is, but that nobody else yet knows. But what I find fascinating about David and Jonathan is how these two people who are held up as the model of, of true friendship, how they became this tight. And I think it has everything to do with their faith. Because in Israel at this time, they're the only two guys in all of Israel who have demonstrated true faith in God. For example, David's faith is demonstrated in the previous chapter with Goliath. David initiates a faith-motivated attack against the giant. He voluntarily fights Goliath because he knew that the Lord, and this is from chapter 17, verse 37, he knew that the Lord who delivered him from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear would deliver him from the hand of the Philistine. And in that chapter, 1 Samuel 17, he's, he's compared to the rest of Israel, to the rest of the army of Saul. We're told that the Israelite army in verse 24 of chapter 17 fled from Goliath and were much afraid. So David stands out in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when Goliath appears on the scene. He stands out as the one individual in all of Israel who has faith and will act on it. There's a story about Jonathan that goes easily overlooked. It comes from the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel. In that situation, Saul and his army are encamped against the Philistine. It's on the hills of chapter 13. You have to remember in chapter 13, Saul offers sacrifices that he's not authorized to offer, and he does it because his military is scared, and they're starting to disperse from him. Some of them are hiding in caves, hiding in cisterns, hiding behind rocks, we're told. Some of them are even fleeing the country. And so Saul fulfills the responsibilities of Samuel to appease his army. But in the midst of that, chapter 14 tells us that Jonathan decided it was time to make a faith-motivated attack against the Philistine. He, with his armor bearer, they're the only two guys. They cross over and attack a Philistine garrison because he knew, 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, because he knew that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so he has this faith-motivated attack just like David, before David ever did. And his faith-motivated attack resulted in the death of 20 men and the flight of the Philistines. And meanwhile, that Israelite army, as I said before, was hiding in caves, in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns, because they were afraid of the Philistines. Both stories have parallels. One individual saying, I've got the faith, I believe in the Lord enough to, to, to attack these enemies, while the rest of everybody else is too scared to move. And God uses both of them, David and Jonathan, as the conduits through him, through whom he would achieve victory for his people. I think 
these are the two guys that are epitome of faith in the nation. And they're looking around at all the other people and saying, where, where, where are the men of faith? And they find each other. And their mutual faith becomes the basis of this incredible kinship that they develop. And so we look here in, at the start of 1 Samuel 18, and you have this deep relationship begin, a relationship that's going to factor into the story for the next few chapters. And I think it's all built on the fact that they both share this common faith that is so beautiful and powerful. And they're, they're looking around and nobody else possesses the same degree of faith that they do. I think that should speak to us about the kind of relationships we build. It's not that we shouldn't have relationships with people who have little faith or have no faith. If you don't have a relationship with people that have no faith, you never have an evangelistic opportunity. And there's an expectation in God's family for the, those who are strong to help those who are weak. So it's not that you don't have relationships with people that aren't on the same level of faith as you, but you do need people of like faith to help build you up, to help encourage you, to help bear your burdens, so on and so forth. And, and so I, one of the beautiful things here that David gains is a friend. But he also gains a job. Look at verse 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 18. Immediately after his defeat of Goliath and his befriending of Jonathan, David's elevated from royal musician to uh, an administrative role in the military. We're told, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so Saul set him over the men of war. Now, it's interesting because later, in verse 13, Saul's going to make David a commander of a thousand. And it seems that in that later verse, verse 13, there seems to be implied some sort of active duty, field command post involved. Whereas this one just seems to be more of a, a general administrative function. Maybe he's uh, in, in support of Jonathan as the leader of the military, and he's functioning in some sort of, some sort of role. I saw one uh, commentator compare it to, to working for the Secretary of War or something like that. I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but this one seems to be more of a stay-at-home authority figure type position, whereas the later role in verse 13 puts him in the field where he's in combat. But what's really important here is David gets this new job, and he goes out and he does it, and he does it success successfully. Verse 13, he's assigned to a new job. He goes out and does it, and he does it successfully. And you'll also notice in the same chapter, we'll get to it, that he gets called in to return to his royal musician job. And he goes and he does it without complaining. What I find fascinating about David as he deals with these jobs and these roles that Saul keeps assigning him, he doesn't find any job or task beneath him. Nor does he find any job or task he's given too difficult for him to do. He does not complain. He does not whine or groan or, or take issue with any assignment. 
He truly fulfills the expectation that the book of Colossians presents that whatever work you find to do, work heartily as to the Lord and not for yourself. David's the epitome of that in this chapter. And so here on the heels of his victory over Goliath, he just keeps working, doing whatever assignment is that comes his way, and he's doing it to the very best of his ability. And throughout the chapter, as we already noted, he has success. So David has gained a friend, David has gained a job, and David gained popularity. You can read there in verse uh, 6, 7, and 8 of the song that is being sung about him. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, As they were coming home from the defeat of Goliath, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the city of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? What's so fascinating about this is it really reveals more about Saul than it does about David. Because it's been pointed out that the comparison of Saul slaying his thousands and David his tens of thousands was a standard way of expressing a very large number and parallel lines of poetry. If you turn over to Psalm chapter 91 and, and verse 7, you're going to see a very similar statement. That's Psalm chapter 91 and verse 7. And both statements are about God. That passage says, A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. What the passage is talking about is God's protection during a plague. And it's using this parallel numbers, extraordinary numbers, to just make the poetic point that a lot of people die here, a lot of people die there, and it's not trying to ascribe greatness to anyone. In the song being sung, about David and Saul, it's not necessarily saying David has killed more than King Saul, because obviously that's not the case. It's just trying to uh, express the greatness of these military heroes. Notice the women came out to see King Saul. They came out to sing for Saul. Saul gets as much credit for David's victory as David does, because he's the military leader. He's the king who selected the individual to defeat Goliath. He's getting credit too, but in Saul's mind, he hears this, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't um, interpret it according to the standard cultural practice of interpreting those lyrics. He finds in it what he wants to find, a reason to be jealous. He has been searching for his replacement, not because he wants to be replaced, but because it was prophesied much earlier that he would be replaced, he's been trying to find who that individual is going to be so that he can prevent his own demise. So you can go back to uh, what passage? 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 28, where Samuel has informed Saul that he's not going to be, uh, or his heirs are not going to be uh, his, king, be his, his uh, um, successor. 
And in verse 28 of 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours. So Saul knows that one of his contemporaries is going to take the throne from him one day. And he has correctly identified David now as that individual. But the song wasn't necessarily meant to claim that David is greater than Saul. Saul interpreted it that way, and it's easy for us to interpret it that way too without understanding Hebrew poetry. But David's popularity has now made him, brought him into the crosshairs of Saul. But it's endeared him to the people. You journey throughout the rest of chapter 18 and, and look, for instance, at verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. You know who else loved David? Saul, just two chapters earlier. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 21, or yeah, 21, we're told after, after Saul had um, acquired David as a, a musician and then made him his armor bearer, Saul loved David. But he forgets that love pretty fast when he feels like David is getting more popular than him. And if we continue through the 18th chapter, you can see David's popularity rise even more at the, the last verse of the chapter, verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Now here's what's interesting. The whole chapter of 1 Samuel 18 speaks about David's success and David's popularity among the people even though his popularity among Saul declined. But not once does David let it go to his head. Not once does David allow that song or the affection of the people or the esteem that his name is getting lead to his own pride. He didn't attempt at any point to take the throne from Saul. He didn't view his success as an opportunity for a coup. He didn't brag about his conquests and hold them over Saul's head. He didn't use any passive-aggressive strategy to make Saul feel inferior. He didn't let his success go to his head. He remained humble the entire time. In fact, we'll be talking about this in just a moment. When, when it becomes time to receive some of his reward for killing Goliath, namely the, hey, you get to marry my daughter, David doesn't feel worthy to be in the royal family. It's a fascinating thing to look at David. Because if you or I killed Goliath, we would be a lot more susceptible to glory. Not all of us, I understand. I know Bob would. We, would. we would want some of that attention. We would start getting wrapped up in it. You watch any celebrity in our world today, as soon as they start getting some popularity, as soon as they get a little bit of fame, it typically goes to their head. Especially when they're young. And let's remember something. David, more than likely, when he killed Goliath, was, was 
probably under the age of 20, because according to Mosaic law, at least during the days of Moses, to be, to be numbered as a military person, you had to be 20 years old or older. So David more than likely is under the age of 20 when this fame is coming to him. And how he deals with it without getting caught up in the pride and the fame is amazing. You would think that his ability to handle all that so humbly would be seen by Saul and would affect the way Saul feels towards him, but it doesn't. All Saul can see is that somebody else is getting attention and he wants that attention. So David here gained popularity as well, and then he gained a wife, as I've already alluded to. Saul owed it to David to let him marry one of his daughters because one of the things we learned back in chapter 17 is that whoever defeats Goliath will get the king's daughter as a prize, so to speak. And Saul seeks to fulfill that obligation initially by offering his eldest daughter Merib to David in verse 17. But we do see that this offer is a ruse because in exchange for her... Saul is demanding that David commit to being his military agent. If you look at verse 17, what Saul says is, Here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now, it kind of sounds like that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good... He wants him to do something that is very spiritual, Fight for the Lord. But it's all ulterior motives. What Saul really wants is for David to be on the battlefield and get killed. So David never agrees to marry this daughter. And that's pretty significant because the eldest daughter is the most important one to marry. That's the one that gives you prestige. That's the one who puts you in a potential position to get the throne if brothers pass away or something like that. That's the important daughter to marry. But notice David's response to this offer. In verse 18, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? David is too humble to take her hand in marriage. And so Saul gave Merib to another man, but then he learned that his other daughter, Michal, She's in love with David. And so he offers her to David. And since she was not the king's eldest daughter, a marriage to her was not nearly as prestigious, but David still didn't feel worthy to marry into the royal family. He says in verse 23, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? No reputation, David. You just killed Goliath, and they're singing your praises. Also, I find it fascinating that he's still a poor man because another promise of the one who killed Goliath is that the king would make them rich. So obviously Saul hasn't fulfilled his end of the bargain completely yet. He's willing to give the daughter, but not the money. Anyway, David indicates that, that he would not be able to pay a bride pot price. That, that's what he says on this instance. So Saul comes back with a different proposal. 
And Saul's proposal is, hey, instead of having to pay me to marry her, just go kill 100 Philistines and bring back a body part to prove it. We'll keep it that simple. David goes, well, well I can do that. It's kind of like, you've got to put this in the context similar to Jacob and Laban negotiating for Jacob to marry Laban's daughters. Instead of using money to pay for that marriage arrangement, Jacob didn't have any money when he arrived there. He was destitute as well because he had, had to leave his family. So he negotiated to be a servant for seven years to get, Leah, to get Rachel and then got, got stuck with Leah and had to do another seven years for, for Rachel. Similar things happening here. Go kill 100 Philistines, and then you can marry my daughter. What's, what I, this is where I love David. David, the overachiever. I'm not going to kill 100. I'm going to kill 200. David, going the extra mile. Because he didn't feel worthy still to marry the daughter of the king. So he did more than he had to. He didn't have that bare minimum mentality that we uh, settle into so often. So David agrees to uh, fulfill that bride price. He's good with that one. And so he goes out and slays the Philistines, 200 of them. And Saul gives him to Michael as a husband. So now David has gained a wife. Now he's part of Saul's family. That's one of the things that's easily overlooked. Forgetting that David was in the royal family through marriage. But David gained one more thing before we exit chapter 18. He gained an enemy. The very end of the chapter, look at verse 28 and 29 of 1 Samuel chapter 18. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Throughout this chapter, chapter 18, Saul employed multiple strategies to have David killed. His first strategy, his first method of getting rid of David was try, to try to execute him personally. We skipped this intentionally. It's back in verses 9 through 12, where a harmful spirit came upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul legitimately attempted homicide in this chapter. And when that didn't work out for him, he decided that he didn't need to get his hands dirty. So his second strategy was to change David's job assignment. This is where he moves him off of the administrative role with military and into active duty role. And you can see this particularly in verse 
13 through 16. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. That terminology of being in charge of a thousand, that essentially means that he was in charge of a, a particular uh, clan's military, a, a segment of the population that served as a military unit, and he was in charge of that. He w- went on the battlefield with them. And as one commentator pointed out, David was removed from the protected confines of the royal residence and was sent to lead Saul's troops in battle. And it's because Saul wanted the Philistines to kill him in battle. Do you remember anybody else that tried that strategy? Huh. David. Where do you think David learned the strategy? (laughs) Just saying. That was Saul's second strategy for getting David out of the picture. His third strategy actually involves marrying his daughters. You may have noticed with the offer to marry his eldest daughter, Merib, in verse 17, there was a little phrase that I didn't mention intentionally, because when David said, here's, I mean, when Saul said, here's my eldest daughter, I will give her to you for a wife, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles, we have this narrative note that for Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Here's the thing. The bride price for her was, hey, you have, to, you have to be on the battlefield for me. You, you have to fight for me. So he's still trying to get the Philistines to kill him. I think in Saul's mind, there may also be the possibility, once the Philistines hear that he's the son-in-law to the king, they'll go after him harder. It will put a higher price on his head. It will make him more susceptible to being attacked by the Philistines. But when David didn't marry her, and he made arrangements for his other daughter to marry her, He needed a little bit of a different strategy because David was too successful in battle. So that's where the, hey, go kill those hundred Philistines for me. And if you look at verse 21 of 1 Samuel chapter 18 in the negotiations for marrying his youngest daughter, again, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. He's trying to find ways to get David killed because he wants David out of the picture. But Saul was unsuccessful. In all those endeavors, the whole chapter is David succeeding, David succeeding, David succeeding, Saul not succeeding. And so you're sitting here looking at David at the end of chapter 18 going, this guy's invincible. This guy makes all the right moves. God blesses him around every corner. Everything's going great for David. Saul can't touch him. He's married into the royal family. He's the most popular guy in the nation. He's the most successful military leader. Then chapter 19 hits. And and, and David's story now looks more like Job's story. Where Job has all this great wealth and everything is perfect in his life and then he loses everything in one day. That's kind of what happens to David. So now we turn from what he gained to what he lost. The first thing he lost was his job. 
By all accounts, David had it made occupationally. He had multiple royal assignments. He, he was royal musician who played for King Saul. He was a military commander. And David was successful. But his success always aroused the ire of King Saul. And so one night, after David executed a successful military campaign against the Philistines, Saul decided that he must be eliminated. So we read in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that, the, so that he stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Realize this. We just read about the same scenario in the previous chapter. But it's not a repeat story. This is the third time Saul has attempted to pin David to the wall with a spear. And I, I've mentioned this a few weeks ago, but what I'm so fascinated with da about David is he kept returning to the danger zone. He willingly went back to fulfill his duty as a musician for Saul, even though he had had multiple attempts on his life. I admire David for that. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I, I think David still thought he could help Saul, and that's why he kept going back. He still wanted to save Saul. But at this point, after this third attempt, there was no more effort to do that. Because from this day forward, after, after this attempt, David becomes fugitive number one for King Saul. And everything is downhill from here. Because not only does he leave that night and lose his job, he's no longer a, a military person for Saul, but he's going to lose his wife that night. On the night that Saul attempted to assassinate David, David's first thought is, I need to go home. I need to go to the safety of my home, to his loving wife. And when she learned of her father's murderous attempt on David's life, she decided to help David escape. So you pick up the story in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 19. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal left David or let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And she took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said he is sick. She helps him. If by all accounts, at this point, she is a dependable spouse. She has chosen her husband above her father even though her father is the king. That's pretty bold. And she ends up lying to her dad. Pretending that David is there when he's not. But she's going to be pressed by him. And it's going to test her love for David. In verse 15 through 17, we read this. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. 
And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at, at its head. And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And she answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Here's the thing. She cared more about her life than she did her husband's life. When push came to shove, she turned on David. She played the innocent victim and did not stand up for him. It may not seem like a big deal, but what she does is contributes to the anger and wrath and fire of her father. His daughter just told him that her husband threatened to kill her if she didn't help him escape the father. As a father, how's that going to make you feel? So she, in this moment, she spared her own life and ignited more of a furor in her father towards David. And her and David would never see each other again. She could never be trusted by him again, and they would, I shouldn't say they'd never see each other again. I actually mean they would never be in harmony again. Eventually, she would be remarried to somebody else. They would be around each other again at some point, but, but their marriage failed from this point forward. So David lost his wife. Where do you go when you can't go home? For David, he went to the, the safest guy in the whole nation. He went to Samuel. Verse 18 of 1 Samuel 19, David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and, and, he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is Naoth in Ramah. Now, Samuel could be trusted, but somebody ratted out David's location. So Saul sends his men to go and capture David. However, God intervened for David's protection by causing all of the soldiers to begin prophesying uncontrollably. And when that happened, Saul said, Well, I'm just going to have to go down there myself. And Saul went there to capture David. But he began prophesying. In the meantime, David managed to escape the city. But unfortunately, his efforts to be protected by Samuel were thwarted. And returning to Samuel would never be possible. It was too risky from that day forward. So in that moment, David lost his mentor. He lost the one person that he knew he could go to. I'm certain there was a watchful eye on Samuel from that day forward to see if David ever returned again. And Samuel passed away while David was still on the run from Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 1. So David has lost his job, his wife, his mentor, Next up is his best friend. You turn over to the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel. When David left Naoth, where he was with, with uh, Samuel, he flees to Jonathan. And you arrive there in the first verse of 1 Samuel 20. David arrives to Jonathan, and first thing he says is, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan's surprised. 
The last he heard, and we didn't cover this, but it was at the start of chapter 19, the last he heard was that his father was going to let David live thanks to his persuasive argument. But David knew death was knocking at his door, and he had to help Jonathan see his father in a new light. And so David pleads with Jonathan. You pick up in verse 3, David David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And so they converse about this some more. They come up with a strategy to find out whether or not Saul really wants David dead. And so if you journey, we're going to... We're not going to read all of it because it's a long chapter and a, and a lot to go over. But if you read through the rest of chapter 20, Jonathan makes plans to go attend this feast with his father. And when David doesn't show up, they're going to gauge Saul's reaction. And that will tell them whether or not Saul wants to kill David. And they have this plan where Samuel, I'm sorry, not Samuel, where Jonathan will be able to alert David who's hiding out in this field that it's time to run. And so they go through this whole process. It's uncovered that, yes, Saul does intend to kill David. So Jonathan goes out there, sends the alert, but Jonathan can't let David hit the road without seeing him first. And so if you skip ahead in chapter 20 to verse 41 and 42, David and Jonathan will meet up, and they realize in this moment that they're no longer going to be able to enjoy one another's company. It was just going to be too dangerous for them to see each other in the future. And the, there's this the overwhelming emotion in their goodbye that you read in verse 41 and 42 where it says, and as soon uh, where it says, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went back into the city. At this moment, because Saul knows that Jonathan is on David's side, and because Saul wants David dead, David loses his friend. David can no longer depend on go to, find support from Jonathan. But David has lost his job, his wife, his mentor, his best friend. There's one more thing he loses. But it's in the 21st chapter, if you'll turn over there. Because see, David has nowhere in the kingdom of Israel that he can go and feel safe. The only choice he thinks he has now is to find refuge in another country. So look what he does, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Do you recognize the name, the Gath name? Do you know where Gath, what Gath is associated with prior to this? Anyone? Goliath. It's Goliath's hometown. It's a capital city of the Philistine empire, if you will. David is going into enemy territory to find refuge. Now, I imagine, or I, 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 I imagine that David's 
mentality is, I'm going to defect to the Philistines, and they'll be more than happy to take a warrior like me to help them fight against Saul. What David doesn't know is that that popular song about his conquests over the Philistines has been playing on the radio in Philistia. Because when he arrives there, you can pick up the reading there in verse 11, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Where did he get the title? where, Where did they get the title king from? How has that been exposed to them? Or is that kind of their assumption based on his popularity? Is, this, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in, in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. In other words, when he gets there, they're like, hey, this is the guy who, 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 who uh, they sing about beating us. Are we really going to be okay with him being here? So now David's afraid because he realizes it's not as safe there as he thought it might be. So look at verse 13. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? You see, David had to lose his self-respect. He had to pretend like he was insane to survive. I have a beard. I try to keep the spittle out of my beard. Not always successful. David is intentionally having to pretend like he's lost his mind just so he can survive another day. The guy that is the most celebrated hero in Israel, the guy that married into the royal family, the guy that was best friends with the prince, the guy that became a military commander in the Israelite army, The guy that had everything going for him in chapter 18 by chapter 21 has nothing. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like you lost everything? David lost his job, his wife, his mentor, his best friend, even to some degree his identity. Definitely his self-respect. So what does he do now? If you skip to chapter 22, you find out he goes to a cave. According to chapter 22 and verse 1, he retreats to the cave of Adullam. And that's significant. Because we have one psalm. That's attributed to David when he was in the cave. It's Psalm 142. Psalm chapter 142. The superscription associated with the psalm says, A mascal of David, 
when he was in the cave, a prayer. The cave. There are probably other caves that David had been in, but this is the most famous cave. So it's assumed that this psalm was written when he was at this moment of his life. And the psalm says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David is at his lowest point. But he never lost his faith in God. He has had everything horrible happen to him that possibly could after having everything wonderful happen to him that possibly could. And now he's sitting alone in a cave, but he's still saying these words, God is still his refuge. God is still his hope. A lot of people would give up in David's position. A lot of people would have decided, if they were in David's position at this point in his life, that it's not worth continuing on. But David doesn't go there. David doesn't arrive at that point because he still has trust in God. You think about somebody who's identified by God as a man after his own heart. And it's somebody who doesn't give up because it's somebody who has put their trust in God as their refuge and the one who will still deal bountifully with them in the future. When life hits rock bottom, when life throws everything at you to shake you, to break you, and to mess up your life, are you willing to be as strong as David and to keep God in the proper perspective? David shows us how to handle the difficulties of life, the tragedies of life, the pain of life, right here in this cave. When he experienced quite possibly worse than any of us ever will. The loss of all those things in succession while somebody's chasing him to kill him. I'm not trying to minimize your experiences, your losses, your pains, your tragedies. But David knew what it was like. And David still kept his hope in the Lord. Remember, all this is happening to him after he has been anointed. After that happens, he's got to be sitting here going, God, what's going on? You had the oil poured on my head and said, I'm going to be the next king of Israel. But I'm in a cave. I'm being hunted. I just had to act like a madman. 
I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. I, I, I shouldn't say that. His family actually comes to him. I don't have a wife. I don't have Samuel. What's up, Lord? But he didn't question God here. He poured out his complaint to God. He called God his refuge and asked God to deal with him bountifully. David is absolutely amazing in this moment. But David is absolutely human in this moment. Which means he can be a model for us in how we handle our faith in times of crisis. Let me uh, wrap up now with a prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we can appreciate David's life so much because it wasn't a perfect life. It wasn't an easy life. And neither are ours. And we thank you that we have that model to be able to look at and to, to know that David has experienced some of the very same difficulties that we have. And Lord, we're grateful we can look at him and see somebody who didn't lose their faith, who didn't forget that you were still in control, who kept sight of you even in the midst of tragedy. Help us, Lord, to be like him in that regard. A lot of us have gone through, through difficulties and pains and, and, and tragedies that are unimaginable. A lot of us hurt at this very moment. Help us to see you in the midst of that hurt. Help us to trust you in the midst of that hurt. Help us to know that you can still deal bountifully with us. And Lord, help us to know that the cave we're in right now isn't forever. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for being here with us. And it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.